You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, April 7th. I'm Julian Abraham. And I'm Mark Gilchrist. The mayor's decision to keep school mask mandates in place for small children has sparked disagreement among parents. I want my kids to have a normal childhood, just like any other kid from two years ago. That's all I want. Hunter College says it's experienced years of underfunding. That means its buildings have fallen into disrepair. It's just literally a hole. Yeah. And there's a wind coming out of the hole. Yeah. With midterm elections approaching in New York, black female voters are organizing to have their voices heard. And a new way for New York City's models and photographers to collaborate is taking off thanks to TikTok. This benefits at the end both the model's portfolio as well as the photographers, even if they're just trying to get images for Tinder. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson is the next Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. NPR's Barbara Sprout reports Jackson's confirmation fulfills President Biden's campaign pledge to nominate the first black woman to the nation's highest court. On this vote, the A's are 53, the nays are 47, and this nomination is confirmed. With that announcement from Vice President Kamala Harris, who presided over the vote, Katanji Brown-Jackson made history. Three Republican senators joined all 50 members of the Democratic caucus in voting yay, Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, and Susan Collins. Ahead of the vote, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer spoke of the significance of Jackson's confirmation. We are taking a giant, bold, and important step on the well-trodden path to fulfilling our country's founding promise. Jackson will be sworn in this summer. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, Washington. Bipartisanship was in full display in the U.S. Senate earlier today when lawmakers voted unanimously to strip Russia of most favored trade status and ban Russian oil imports. President Biden is expected to sign the bills into law, the U.S.'s latest attempt to economically squeeze the Russian government, which is already facing sweeping sanctions from the West over its invasion of Ukraine. In Brussels today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the U.S. had pledged yet more military help to Ukraine, $100 million worth of Javelin anti-tank weapons. Together, we're sustaining and building on pressure on the Kremlin and its enablers, including with unprecedented sanctions. Ukrainian leaders, meanwhile, are telling residents in the eastern part of the country to save themselves and evacuate. NPR's Nathan Rott reports the deputy prime minister warns Russian troops are gathering near Ukraine's eastern border and may be preparing for a new attack. There's been heavy fighting in eastern Ukraine since Russia invaded, but Ukrainian officials say they now believe Russian troops are gearing up for a larger offensive in the region. Their attack in the northern part of the country and near the capital, Kiev, stalled and troops have since withdrawn. Social media videos showed jammed train stations in eastern Ukraine towns like Kramatorsk as people who have stayed in the region for the first six weeks of war are now deciding to flee. An estimated 10 million Ukrainians have been displaced by Russia's invasion. Nathan Rapp, NPR News, Kiev. Downtown Tel Aviv is the site of a mass shooting. Israeli police say at least two people were killed, several others wounded. When someone opened fire in a bar and restaurant district where crowds of people were dining out tonight, authorities are advising people to avoid the area while they search for the shooter. It's not immediately clear what sparked the attack. It follows a series of deadly attacks over the past month. This is NPR News. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Lucy Grindon. 
New York state lawmakers are expected to vote this evening on the new state budget. The proposed budget includes a suspension of some state gas taxes, which would save New Yorkers about 16 cents a gallon. It also includes a provision allowing restaurants to sell alcohol with their takeout and delivery orders. Starbucks employees in Buffalo, Rochester, and Brighton, New York, voted today to unionize the coffee shops where they work. In the recent wave of Starbucks unionizations, workers trying to unionize have been successful in 13 out of 14 elections. Housing Works today announced that it plans to open two new overdose prevention centers in New York City, one in Midtown and one on the Lower East Side. The organization provides support for the homeless and people living with HIV-AIDS. The two centers would provide supervised consumption services for drug users. The BA2 Omicron subvariant is causing a sharp increase in the number of COVID-19 cases in New York City. The city's current seven-day average, now about 1,500 cases, has doubled in the last month. The city's overall test positivity rate is about 3 percent. Manhattan's is higher, at 6 percent. But hospitalizations have not risen significantly. A Chicago Economic Development Agency is taking a page out of New York City's book by encouraging Floridians to move north in response to the state's so-called don't-say-gay law. Today, the Chicago agency took out a full-page ad in, in an Orlando newspaper criticizing the policy. New York City bought billboard ads to the same effect in five Florida cities that went up earlier this week. One of the billboards reads, quote, People say a lot of ridiculous things in New York. Don't say gay isn't one of them. Today is opening day of the 2022 Major League Baseball season. The Mets play the Nationals tonight in Washington. The Yankees were scheduled to play the Red Sox, but were rained out. They'll play the home game tomorrow. This is Lucy Grindon, Columbia Radio News. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Julian Abraham. And I'm Mark Gilchrist. More than a week after the deadline, New York state budget may finally be on its way. But with hundreds of billions of dollars of state funding on the line, some are criticizing the government not just for the delay, but for the fact that the negotiations have been happening behind closed doors. Tom Speaker is a policy analyst at reInvent Albany, a nonprofit that advocates for government reform. He says although Governor Hochul excuse me, promised to make changes, she went for more than 10 days without speaking to the press during the recent budget negotiations. It's been kind of a recent development as, as far as this administration goes because we've actually seen a lot of positive changes uh, since the transition happened last summer, such as more COVID-19 data being provided. Um, the governor signs the MTA Open Data Act. Um, but, you know, since uh, the budget season rolled around, uh, things have certainly become less transparent. We've seen uh, basically what Albany veterans commonly refer to as the three people in a room where the governor and Senate Majority Leader and the Assembly Speaker uh, have most of the budget negotiations behind closed doors um, and you know, in certain cases, even high-ranking legislators have been saying that they have no idea what's happening. Um, and that's something that has really been in Albany's tradition for decades at this point. Right. So in the middle of these negotiations, Kathy Hochul went about a week and a half, 10 days without talking to the press. What do you make of this? Uh, it's quite unfortunate. And I believe that Politico reported that since the 1920s, that's the longest period that um, a governor has gone without speaking to the press, at least during the budget period. Um, and we find it quite discouraging because, you know, when the transition happened last year, uh, the governor sold herself as being the transparency governor. Um, and there have been 
many positive changes on the transparency front, but during, but during, during budget negotiations, which affects, uh, so many of the things happening in the state. Yeah. It's, it's disappointing that this has not been a more transparent process. Yeah. So the Speaker of the State Assembly and the State Senate Majority Leader are both Democrats. So why can't they and Hochul just get this done faster? Um, well, there's a variety of reasons, but the reason that a lot of legislators have been citing is um, the governor's office deciding to put so many policy items into the budget at the last minute, notably um, the changes to bail reform, uh, the rollbacks, um, and the announcement of the Buffalo Bills stadium subsidy deal, uh, which, you know, Senator uh, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, the uh, majority leader of the Senate, said that she had not even seen coming, that she had been blindsided by. So I want to ask you, why is this important? Why why does the public need to be in the loop on this process? Uh, well, transparency helps ensure that government stays accountable to the people. You know, we we pay our public official salaries. They have a responsibility to be transparent about what they're doing. Uh, that helps. That allows the public to hold them accountable, to respond to the plans that are being announced, uh, and to have a greater say in what decisions are being made. And um, when there's a lack of transparency and the public cannot respond. What it means is that the people who have more access, who typically have more access, such as corporations or special interests or high-paid lobbyists, end up having uh, more influence in the budget process and over policy than everyday people. Tom Speaker, policy analyst at reInvent Albany. Thank you so much for joining us on Uptown Radio. As midterm elections loom in the fall, political candidates in New York are beginning to engage with voters and community groups. Chantel Destra reports on how one group is leveraging this moment to bring attention to the needs and concerns of black women in the city. Thank you, everyone. And we're just going to jump right in and get started. Last week, the New York City Black Women's Political Club held an online forum with gubernatorial candidate Jumani Williams. I'm going to say we are ecstatic to have you here, Mr. Williams. Thank you so much for giving me an opportunity to speak today. About 75 women were on the call. After introductions, the floor was open for questions. So bringing attention to inequities has been a huge priority for you. How would you look to expound on that work as governor? One of the reasons I'm running for governor is because um, I've been advocating for these things. It would be great to have the tools to actually do the things that I've been advocating for. This event is a part of a series created by the New York City Black Women's Political Club leading up to the midterms. Jamila Fines is the president of the group. She says they are important because they allow Black women to connect with candidates in an intimate setting. We're holding open, um, free-flowing discussions where Black women have, in a relaxed space, an opportunity to engage all of the individuals who are running, regardless of what side of the spectrum they're on, discuss and share what their concerns are, and also hear from these candidates directly on where they're going, what they're looking to do, and you know what their vision is for the community. Fine says candidates often haven't engaged directly with Black women because they felt they've already had their votes. And to an extent, she says, they were right. A lot of times people just check down, oh yeah, Democrat, 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 but they're not really 
always thinking, hmm, who do I think will do what I need to be done for the community? Robert Shapiro is a professor of government at Columbia University. He agrees that Black women tend to vote Democratic in New York City when they vote. He says the question is really, what can a Democratic candidate do to ensure that voters turn out? You know, they can't take these votes for granted in the sense that it's possible people might not vote. What they need to pay attention to is basically making sure they get out get out the vote. They know the vote's reliable, but it's only reliable if people are actually voting. So we hear you <laughs> During a recent event, the Political Club partnered with the Shirley Chisholm's Women's Business Leadership Circle to screen a documentary focused on Chisholm's presidential campaign. After the screening, community leaders discussed the importance of organizing to strengthen the political power of Black women. LaShawn Allen Muhammad leads the group hosting the event. She says it's important to establish a community to see progress. This is our time. Black women are banding together. Black women are showing up in a way as a collective that we have not seen in a long time. Fines believes that local organizing can help implement change nationally. Start making changes on a local level and watch and see as you take more and more chunks and bites and make more and more changes, how things eventually are going to be forced to change on a higher level. Fine says the New York City Black Women's Political Club has a series of forums planned this summer to identify community needs and concerns leading up to elections in November. Chantel Destra, Columbia Radio News. New New Yorkers will be able to order takeout cocktails again. Governor Kathy Hochul says it will soon be legal to grab a boozy beverage and stroll the sidewalks. As Uptown Radio's Elliot Chaparelli reports, bars have been pushing for the return of one of the few perks of the pandemic. There's this dive bar just two blocks from Central Park. It's called Bob's Your Uncle. Ryan Kehoe is behind the bar pouring drinks and casually chatting with patrons about the playlist. He says takeout margaritas and palomas kept the bar alive in the early days of the pandemic. It was kind of refreshing to be able to like give people to go drinks because I feel like this is New York City, like take a drink to go and also it's COVID times. And there's something nice about like having, I got to go drinks from other places and it was nice to walk around with a drink openly. It's like a New Orleans feeling, you know what I mean? One regular sitting at the bar, MJ Brown, says to go cocktails were one of the few things he could do to support the business during the pandemic. But even now, he says New York needs the pick-me-up. Well, we would love the city to be more rowdy, for God's sakes. And, you know, geez, this was supposed to be the city that never slept, but this city's sleeping at 9 o'clock in the evening now. A sleepier New York is fine with some people. Opponents of to-go cocktails have been arguing against the legislation, saying legalizing them again leads to rowdy bars, public intoxication, and street noise. One of the most ardent opponents of the proposal was the liquor store lobby. They said it would hurt their businesses. But Yahara Tapia, the manager of Manhattan Valley Wines and Spirits, says she's not so sure. 
I, I'm in favor of it. You know, that's, it's a different sector. If someone is buying a $15 cocktail at a to-go bar, that's not like someone who's going to want to spend, you know, $30 to buy their own and make it at home. And they could make 50 cocktails, right? So it's kind of a price discrepancy. The current plan for to-go cocktails sets some rules to ensure that street drinks and liquor stores cater to different audiences. Bars and restaurants will not be allowed to sell full bottles, and they'll have to serve food with their takeout drinks. In her original budget proposal, Governor Kathy Hochul pushed for a permanent legalization of takeout beverages, calling it the most popular item in her budget. But the current plan would legalize to-go drinks for three years, and then lawmakers would have to revisit the issue. But even with the popularity of the option, some bartenders say it's too much work. David Labispier works at 67 Orange, an upscale cocktail bar in Harlem. Yeah, it helped during the pandemic because we didn't have the we didn't have the indoor seating, so we could have spent more time making them. But right now we are extremely busy. We're like, actually, we're actually one of the best cocktail bar in New York City, so we don't have time to prep and do all of this during a shift. Labispier says even when the state legalizes to-go cocktails, his bar will still focus on dine-in. The plan for to-go cocktails is part of the state budget negotiations happening right now, so it still needs to be finalized. But New Yorkers will probably be able to spend their summer drinking Palomas in the park. I'm Elliot Schiaparelli, Columbia Radio News. You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm David Newtown. The United States Senate confirmed Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to the United States Supreme Court today. Her confirmation hearings were marked by Republican opposition. Vice President Kamala Harris presided over the vote. Judge Jackson will be the first black woman to serve on the court in its 233-year history. Jackson will take over for Judge Stephen Breyer. He's set to serve until the court's current term ends, usually in late June. New York Attorney General Letitia James is seeking to hold former President Donald Trump in civil contempt of court. She says he has refused to comply with a court order to produce documents related to an ongoing investigation into his personal taxes. Her office wants Trump to pay a $10,000 fine for every day he refuses to comply with the court's order. President Trump was initially supposed to release those documents on March 3rd of this year, but the Office of the Attorney General agreed to accommodate his request for more time. The date was extended to March 31st. On that date, though, the Office of the Attorney General says Trump raised new objections and refused to produce any of the selected documents. This afternoon, the United Nations National Assembly passed a resolution to suspend Russia from the UN Human Rights Council. This is in response to what Ukrainian President Zelensky has repeatedly called war crimes, killings of Ukrainian civilians in Bucha as Russian troops retreated from its capital, Kyiv. Russia is the second country to ever be suspended from the Human Rights Council. The first was Libya in 2011, which was removed in response to Muammar Gaddafi's crackdown on anti-government protesters. After the vote, Russia announced its own decision to end its relationship with the Human Rights Council. The S&P 500 is up about half a percent, the Dow Jones is up about a third of a percent, and the Nasdaq is up about a fourth of a percent. David Newtown, Columbia Radio News. New York City's Hunter College is going through a bit of a rough patch. 
Students are complaining of broken, boarded-up windows, leaky ceilings, and the general lack of cleaning and maintenance of the facilities. But the college is not entirely to blame. As Julian Abraham reports, they are waiting on the state of New York to increase funding. When I got to Hunter College's nursing campus on East 25th Street, the entrance sign was so chipped and faded I almost missed it. There was broken concrete I almost tripped on, cars parked on what used to be a tennis court, and broken windows. Further uptown at the main Hunter campus, there is a chorus of jackhammers in construction. I mean, you hear construction in the background, so hopefully <laughs> they're fixing something. But... That's Alex, the psychology student who did not want to give me her real name. Inside, I met up with Joe Yin, a doctoral student in physics. He showed me what's supposed to be the water fountain on his floor. It's now just a hole in the wall. Take a look at here. Empty hole. It's just literally a hole. Yeah. And there's a wind coming out of the hole. Yeah. To get to the nearest drinking water, he has to go to the opposite end of campus. Out of the 10 elevators, only a few work. So, okay, so you can see here. This one doesn't work, right? This one doesn't work, right? This one works. You can see the sign. This one works. This three, this three basically works. After about a 20-minute journey, we got to a water fountain in another building. Because I spent like a three times of time to take, waiting for the elevator, waiting to get the water fountain to get to get to the water. So I think that's that's not acceptable. Hunter is part of the City College of New York system, known as CUNY. According to a study from Cambridge, CUNY's funding from New York State has been on a steady decline since 2008, and the city has tried to cut it even more since then. Though spokespersons for Hunter College declined an interview, they did give us a statement. In that statement, they said they have endured years of underfunding, along with the challenges of the pandemic and damages from Hurricane Ida. The statement also said they've spent $25 million of their own money on repairs, and are now hoping for more money in the state budget for their new nursing building. Jen Gaburi is a professor at Hunter. She and others have been appealing to the governor for help. Right now, um, you know, Kathy Hochul is building a stadium um, for the Buffalo Bills, but she could have her stadium, but she needs to reach into her pocket and enlarge the pie and pay for critical services. Gabori says CUNY itself is not the one to blame for the disrepair. I wish the budget was more transparent, so I wouldn't have to ask. But, like, um, uh, CUNY needs more cash. And even if they do get it, they won't be able to start fixing things until next school year. Julian Abraham, Columbia Radio News. In late March, Mayor Eric Adams announced the ending of the mask mandate for children aged 2 to 4, effective this past Monday. But on Friday of last week, the mayor changed his mind, citing rising case numbers and the spread of the BA2 variant. As David Newtown reports, parents of young children are still trying to balance their kids' safety with quality of life. You want to sing a song? No. <laughs> Sarah Haley and Shauna Redmond are in their Upper West Side apartment. They're helping their three-year-old son, Robeson, get ready for a trip to the park. He's sitting on the floor by the front door, pulling on his blue and purple sneakers. When Robeson stands up, Haley hands him the last part of his outfit, a small white mask. You put it on. 
Does this one fit you? Yes, it does. When they arrive at the 116th Street playground in Morningside Park, Robeson runs off to join a group of other kids taking turns on the slide. He's still wearing his mask, but after a little while, he comes back over to Haley. He just took off his mask and handed it to me, and I think it's interesting because he knows he's outside, and so he has a sense of the it rules of masks too, which is interesting to me. Robeson's other mom, Redmond, says she's relieved that the mayor has decided to keep the mask mandate for kids under five. She feels dropping the mask mandate will put her family at risk, even though the rate of transmission remains low compared to the wave in January. While things are perhaps getting better, I think it's ill-advised and would prefer that we at least ride out the rest of the school year. They're used to the masks now, having been in them all year, and we'll reevaluate over the summer. A few blocks further north in Morningside Park, a group of parents and kids are attending a birthday party. Nofar Hamovitz keeps a watchful eye on her two-year-old son, Lou, as he toddles back and forth under a jungle gym. Nearby, her three-year-old son, Boz, is playing with her husband, Elad. Hamovitz says she was glad when the mayor announced the end of the mandate for young children. And now she's frustrated that the mandate remains in place for the indefinite future. I think it's time to do it. I understand the numbers are going up. I understand there is still COVID. None of us are thinking it's gonna, gone away. Her son, Lou, was born during the first weeks of the lockdown in 2020. Her other son, Boz, and her husband weren't even allowed to visit her in the hospital. Hamovitz says her kids have lost too much of their childhoods to lockdowns and life behind a mask. I want my kids to have a normal childhood, just like any other kid from two years ago. That's all I want. Matthew Lamb is an assistant professor of epidemiology at Columbia University. He says that two years into the pandemic, data shows that the severity of COVID infection in children under five is much lower than in other age groups. So he says we're asking kids to wear masks not so much for their own health as for their families and others in the community. I can understand the concern among uh, parents of young children about whether, you know, their kids are maybe being asked to, you know, do something that might be not beneficial for them for reasons that don't have a lot of benefit to them. But Lamb says while science can inform decisions about safety during the pandemic, it can't dictate policy. It's useful to kind of remember what um, our goals are. Our goals change depending on, you know, if our goal is to reduce transmission versus to reduce consequences of transmission. For Haley and Redmond, they want Robeson to be as safe as he can be for their whole family's sake. But if he can have fun going down slides while doing it, that's good too. Tomorrow, Robeson is headed back to his nursery school. He'll be masked just the same as last week. David Newtown, Columbia Radio News. New York City is relocating some of its agencies to outer boroughs in an effort to boost economies outside the city center. The program is called the CARE Initiative for city agencies revitalizing the economy. And yesterday, the city broke ground at Broadway Junction in East New York and Brooklyn on a building that excuse me, on a building to house the Department of Social Social Services, Human Resources Administration, and over a 1,000 employees. The building will also include 80,000 square feet of private commercial space. Bill Wilkins is Director of Economic Development and Housing at the the nonprofit Local Development Corporation of East New York. He says he approves of the city plan to move some agencies out of high-rent districts. So it only makes sense to move agencies to the outer boroughs and to secure leases at much more reasonable and affordable rates, which reduces the cost 
ultimately to taxpayers and money can be used in better instances. So to me, it's a, a rational, reasonable, prudent, pragmatic approach to financial property management. But wouldn't this make New York City more like Los Angeles, you know, encourage some kind of sprawl if they're you know, sending different agencies to, you know, different parts of the city and making it more difficult for people to deal with the local government? Well, I, I, I don't think that's true because in this particular instance at Broadway Junction, it's a transportation node. So you have five train lines that converge into one destination and the building is a half a block from that destination. So I think it makes individuals commute easier. And in certain instances, it creates like an urban transit reverse commute. Individuals, instead of cramming into trains going to lower Manhattan or downtown Brooklyn, they'll be going in the opposite direction. And a lot of the workforce actually lives in the outer boroughs. And what about the private part of it? I mean, do you think that uh, initiatives like this, which are starting with the government as the core sort of tenant, are going to be able to attract the private sector to come in? Of course they will, because you have an anchor tenant. Are there any potential downsides to this kind of private public initiative, as far as you can tell? Well, the downside is that um, people feel that, you know, when you engage in urban renewal, it means black and Latino removal. But I see this as an opportunity to support and to help maintain those businesses and residents that are indigenous to East New York and creating a benefit for them. This has been Bill Wilkins, Director of Economic Development and Housing of the Local Development Corporation of East New York. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. The pandemic was hard on the photography industry. Photo shoots with strangers weren't allowed. Models were forced to rely on selfies. Now that people are getting out again, photographers and models are trying to rebuild their portfolios. And one organization is trying to help. Emily Schutz has the story. It all started with TikTok. Uh, hi, my name is Lexi. I'm a photographer in New York City. And um, I host photo meetups. And uh, That's Lexi Brown. She's the person behind Dear Creators, an organization that hosts weekly photography gatherings for models and photographers to work with one another. The goal is for each party to gain photos for their portfolios and to network in the process. A lot of spots left and uh, you should come. The link is in my bio. Her TikTok promotional videos seem to work because the next few meetups are sold out. Every event costs $50 per ticket for both photographers and models. The money goes towards renting unique and interesting spaces for photo shoots. On social media, Brown posts videos showcasing the event, like this one in a professional studio with a white background. A photographer is crouched down with a camera directed towards a model. She's posing on a stool. Badesim Kubak is a co-founder of the event. This benefits at the end both the model's portfolio as well as the photographers, even if they're just trying to get images for Tinder. Or Instagram. Carla Perez is a New York City-based photographer. She's attended four of these meetups, each time as a model. If you hire a photographer in New York, you go and take pictures on the street unless you actually hire a studio as well or like a place to shoot. 
I saw it as a way to get nice professional pictures for cheap. So it's like, great, works for me. Perez and other creatives get specific about the kinds of images they hope to achieve at each meetup. Co-founder Badesim Kubak says the secret is to get attendees communicating long before the event. Our meetups don't necessarily start on location. The moment someone buys a ticket, they are added to a group that is formed on our website where they can already start connecting with everyone else who's coming to these events. Carla Perez says from the moment she buys tickets, she begins planning who she'll work with and the design she's going for. So I'm like, this is what I'm thinking. And a lot of people give you advice. It's like, oh yeah, I think that's great. Our photographers will be like, yeah, this fits my mood board perfectly. Photographers and models sign up for an hour-long time slot in the space. About a week after the event, the photographers are required to upload a final edited version of each photo to a folder that models can then access. Regardless of their reason for attending, each person leaves with high-quality photos. In fact, Brown says that anyone can attend, regardless of experience. That was a gigantic part of it, is you can come to this meetup just to try one of those. As the demand for these events increases, Dear Creators is scheduling new photo shoots with various themes. This weekend, they're hosting a beauty portrait session, so get ready for your close-up. Emily Schutz, Columbia Radio News. A new thing that I introduced today is called the feelings brownie, so you could eat your feelings. <laughs> Sarah McGid, owner and baker of Need Love's Bakery. My main item that I'm most popular or well-known for is our gluten-free sourdough bread, which is 24-hour fermented gluten-free bread. And then it sort of expanded from there into bagels, um, other fun treats like a PMS cookie, which is potato chips from another Union Square farmer, vegan marshmallows, chocolate. It actually started out of a response to an autoimmune um, issue that I was having, and I had to transition from baking with sugar and butter and more classic ingredients. So it's about sort of reimagining foods in a more nutrient-dense and delicious way. You're listening to Uptown Radio from Columbia Radio News, Thursdays at 4 p.m. And now for the next in our commentary series, Rebecca Robinson shares how her relationship with volleyball helped her navigate life when things go wrong. I've loved playing volleyball for as long as I can remember. I joined the team at my all-girls school when I was 13 and mastered the underhand serve. We weren't good, but we had a good time. We danced to songs like Payphone from Maroon 5 or Call Me Maybe from Carly Rae Jepsen on the minibus. I love playing volleyball because it came with built-in friendship with your teammates. The other thing that brought me back over and over again was the thrill of leaping into the air anime style and the satisfying slapping sound when my palm made contact with the ball. Up until this point, things had gone smoothly. I was only in middle school. I still hadn't faced any major curveballs, I hadn't been seriously sick, and I had a super supportive family. The obstacles I had to overcome mostly included squabbles with my friends, like over which mall to hang out at over the weekend. Then in my freshman year of high school, I dislocated my knee for the first time. I had just made the JV team and was warming up when a wrong step left me in excruciating pain and tears. What followed was months of uncomfortable physical therapy. My dislocated kneecap meant I started high school on metal crutches and a leg brace that went from my hip down to my ankle. Like any teenager, I did not want to stick out. This was definitely not the first impression I wanted to make. And it also kept me from doing the thing that made me happiest, playing on the court as part of a team. 
For the first time in my early life, something went pretty wrong and I was feeling mentally and physically uncomfortable. But there's this idea we heard in a freshman health class, that we should lean into discomfort. I can still see the handout in my head. You've probably heard of the comfort zone, but just outside of it is a stretch zone. And it's in the stretch zone where you may feel discomfort or an ease within yourself. In moments like bad haircuts, bombing a job interview, or even breakups, for example. It's not always easy being in that space, but that's the point. Because it's where you grow and learn. So while it totally sucked being out for the season, I still made an effort to get to every game in practice, even though I couldn't play, just to learn the skills my coaches drilled the team on. Three years later, when I was a junior blocking a ball during practice, I heard an ominous popping noise. My knee had dislocated again. I sat in the back of my dad's blue car with my legs stretched out across the seat, crying quietly. I was so disappointed to make it this far, only to be out for the entire season once again. The road to recovery was more intense this time. A surgeon sliced open my knee and stitched in a cadaver tendon and plastic screws to hold it in place. Working through that discomfort felt more challenging than the first time. But I had already learned that discomfort is temporary. I'd grown mentally stronger, and I knew that when faced with an uncomfortable situation, I would lean into it. My last year of high school, I ventured to Russia for a homestay. I could only make limited conversation with my teenage host sisters, but at least I could ask for what I wanted for breakfast. Chorni jai kasha. Black tea and porridge. After high school, I moved a 12-hour car ride away into Canada for college, where I didn't have any friends or family. At Thanksgiving, I battled homesickness, watching my followers on Instagram share pictures of turkeys and their partners. But eventually, I made new friends, and now I like to call them my second family, and we spend holidays together. My knee injury at the time was at best frustrating and at worst painful, yet I learned to work through discomfort even if things go wrong, which of course they inevitably will because, I mean, that's just how life works. And that's why I'll keep playing volleyball. Well, that does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Our executive, produ- excuse me, our executive producer today is David Marquez. Clara Sophia Daly is our senior producer. This show is directed by Clara Grunitz, along with Sarah Yakubaitis and Emily Schutz. The show is edited by Chantal Destra and Linnea Arden. Our newscasters are David Newtown and Lucy Grindon. Rebecca Robinson gets the stream stream live on the web. Our instructors are Sally Herships, Robert Smith, and Ben Shapiro. I'm Mark Gilchrist. And I'm Julian Abraham. Uptown Radio is live on Thursdays at 4. Until next time, you can always find us at uptownradio.org. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thank you for listening.